Did you feel like you just heard angels sing? Beautiful, beautiful. John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I've already been so blessed today. Um, got to hear Kelly Turbyfill recite Matthew 5. He has memorized the entire Sermon on the Mount. So he had a couple words twisted. He's going to do another shot next time. But somehow those words of Christ just meant something more to me today than I have ever heard. Just beautiful. So the year that Mark and I were married, we lived in Yakima. And Dr. Stanley Wilkinson owns one of the largest cherry orchards in the state. And he invited us to come and pick cherries, as many as we wanted, as a gift. Mark had grown up in a working-class family where food money was limited and fresh fruit was rare or strictly rationed mostly apples, oranges, and bananas. But sweet cherries happened to be Mark's favorite of all foods. And so when we stepped into that orchard, surrounded by this bumper crop of trees just laden with red cherries, Mark had a happy attack. And if you've ever seen Mark have a happy attack, he just acts like a small child. He can get so excited. He began to hoot with delight, and he began to pick those cherries as fast as he could to get as many of those luscious beauties in the bucket and in the boxes while the sun still was out. Bucket after bucket began to fill, and then box after box. And I kept saying, I think we have enough. But he was not going to slow down. He loved cherries, and these were free. Well, I had canned before, and I saw though that growing mountain of cherries as work yet to be done. And yet he refused to stop picking. 
I'll help you, he said. We'll buy a pitting machine. We'll buy more jars. We'll give cherry sauce away for Christmas this year. This is so fun. I can't stop now. There's still so many cherries to pick. Well, sure enough, we bought a gravity-fed machine to pit them, and we set up this table in our backyard and put on our old swimming suits so we wouldn't stain our clothes. We pitted and canned cherries into the night, night after night after night. And when we moved to Maine ten years later, we still had cherries. (laughs) Well, Jesus tells us that it's the Father's will that we bear much fruit. Who doesn't want a bumper crop? We all want our lives to matter, and we all want to make the world a better place because we're here. We all want to have enough that we can share, that we can give away from the abundance of our life. First of all, what do we mean by fruit? It's natural to interpret this as a general call to evangelism, that fruit is the people who have come to faith because we have somehow helped them and worked with them. But there's no reason to restrict Jesus' meaning of fruit into winning souls. Throughout the Bible, the words fruit and good works are used interchangeably. For example, in Titus 3.14, it reads, Let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. The disciples would not have interpreted Jesus' words to mean just evangelism. To those who lived in an agrarian society, their whole lives focused on that harvest. The fruit symbolized success, the best result or the sweetest prize of life. And so Psalm 1, verse 3, that we read in our call to worship this morning, the righteous man shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. In practical terms, fruit represents good works, a thought an attitude, or an action that we have and God enjoys because it gives him glory. I want to make God's heart glad every day, not because I'm trying to earn his favor, but because I love him and I want to see him smile because of me. The fruit from your life is how God receives his honor due on this earth. And that is why Jesus declares, By this is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. Well, we also bear inner fruit when the Spirit comes into our heart and begins to nurture and create 
qualities that are just like Jesus. And this is such a familiar verse. The fruit of the Spirit is listed here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What in that list is there not to love? And don't we all want those to be the descriptors of the life that we live on this earth? You bear outward fruit when you allow God to work in you and through you as you're connected to him. This certainly would include sharing your faith, but it's bigger than that. It's about the attitude that you have when you are doing absolutely anything. It's how you weed your garden and wash your dishes. It's how you do your work. It's all fruit if it's all done for the glory of God. Paul wrote... God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you may abound to every good work. Did you count the alls in that list? Is there ever a time that God won't give you what you need to do good work? For his glory. If it's for his glory, he's going to help you. And that word abound. Now, I get a visual image when I hear the word abound. It's zucchini. Do you know why the inhabitants of Squim lock their doors in the months of August and September? It's so no one will leave zucchini without being asked. (laughs) We all, if we have a garden, we've got lots and lots of zucchini. And thankfully, some of you like to share it because I like to enjoy it. Abound to every good work, this verse says. So think zucchini. Whether you're chopping wood for a neighbor, taking a meal to someone who is sick, talking on the phone to someone who just needs a listening ear, or giving your life as a missionary, as Eric and Carly or Sarah Cowles are going to do and planning on doing. Whatever you are doing, if you're doing it with Jesus in your heart and with the goal of honoring God, it is good fruit. Outward fruit appears whenever it is our desire to bring God glory. So let's take a moment to just examine the context of these verses in John 15. What we have to remember is within the next 24 hours, Jesus will be stretched on the cross, his body stripped and pierced, and his life ebbing away. Jesus has just completed the Last Supper, and he begins to teach his disciples And they do not like this teaching. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. For months, he's been trying to tell these guys that his appointment in Jerusalem will be a cross, not a throne. They've only heard what they wanted to hear. But tonight, the time is up. 
And so Jesus has to strip away their worldly hopes. And he says, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. That rules out him becoming the king and having public triumph. Jesus presses on. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Say, what? They ask. They can only interpret this to mean one thing. Jesus will not be the ruler, and he will not be the earthly king. There is pain written all over the disciples' faces. And out of context, Jesus' words, even here, seem serene and hopeful. But given the context, each of these phrases mirrors emotional devastation of these disciples that are hearing these words. So listen to these words and imagine their faces. My little children... I will be with you only a little longer, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Whoa, no, Jesus, no, don't leave us. They are feeling small and weak. I have loved you. They are staring at him in disbelief, mistrust, and fear, loved with a D, past tense. What's going on here? Let not your heart be troubled. How could their hearts be anything but troubled on that Thursday night if they even halfway believe what he's telling them? He is going to die, and they're overwhelmed with anxiety and dread. I will not leave you orphans. They're slumped before him like abandoned children, feeling defenseless in a hostile world world. And the evening in the upper room ends, and all the questions are done, and into the silence, Jesus says, arise, let us go out from here. So, eleven dejected men follow Jesus down the stairs from the upper room, and then down the hill and out of Jerusalem. They turn sharply to the left and they follow the Kidron Valley. Along the terraces that follows the curve of that valley, they pass through ancient vineyards. They walk in single file between these rows of neatly tended grapes, grapes that have been bearing fruit for generations, maybe hundreds of years. To the left above them tower the city walls and the ramparts of the temple. And ahead and to the right is the Mount of Olives, where Gethsemane and betrayal await. But Jesus stops. Hemmed in by the rows of of grapevines, the disciples gather around him. Lamps and torches flicker in the night. Jesus reaches for a grape branch. It's spring, and the woody stem lies across his hand, showing small green sprouts of new growth. And he begins, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, why would Jesus be talking in such detail about grapes when he's just a few hours away from death? 
and his best friends have had their hopes crushed. Why now this particular teaching? That's the question we're going to explore together this morning. And this is what I would like to offer to you. The spiritual truth in this passage explains what the Father wants from each of us when we are confused and disillusioned. And following Jesus is not turning out like we've expected it to do and be. Every word of this teaching matters when we are tempted and feel betrayed by our Heavenly Father. So clearly Jesus knew that the time and place were right and that he had to show these disciples a new way of looking at things. Jesus wanted them to see their present and their future, not from their own perspective, but from the perspective of heaven. He didn't want to leave them on earth wondering, what is God up to? Why isn't this turning out? Jesus had not led his disciples into the vineyard that Thursday night to make their personal dreams come true. Their dreams were too small, too wrapped up in national politics and personal power, and not about the kingdom of God showing the gospel of grace to the world. So here is a secret of the vine. We are not on this earth to fulfill our own dreams of personal grandeur. We are here to fulfill God's dreams for us. So we will bring him glory through that remarkably fruitful and abundant life. And in this promise, the Father doesn't promise that it won't hurt that we'll never experience pain. He only promises that he knows what he's doing. And if there is pain in our life, he will use it for his glory. He knows what he's doing. Nothing the wise and attentive vine dresser does to the vine is random. Nothing. Every single action has its purpose. In her book, Scouting the Divine, Margaret Feinberg interviews, I'd never seen this word before, a vintner. A vintner is someone who grows grapes and makes them into wine. So she interviews this vintner, and she asks him, do you look at every vine? Christoph, the vintner, answered, not only that, but I look at every cluster of grapes at least once once each season, but more likely two, three, or even four times before the harvest. That is a lot of tender, loving care. During the second year of growth, the vines are especially micromanaged. Each vine is pruned to grow in a way that will establish it as a healthy base for decades to come. The vine dresser is not in a hurry. He sees beyond this year's harvest to 10 years from now and what is going to be productive. He takes the long, long view when he's growing our lives. 
In the third year, the vine is permitted to reach up the trellises and produce a modest amount of fruit. And each year after that, the vine is carefully sculpted and pruned as it grows. Without constant, consistent care, the vine will produce foliage, but no grapes. Or, as the grapes are developed, there may be lots and lots of them, but they won't be sweet, and they won't have good flavor. Good vine dressers do not push their vines early for high productivity. Instead, they look down the line and look for the best quality flavor eventually. God doesn't only want much fruit. He wants good fruit. A passage from my Sunset Magazine pruning book states, Special techniques have evolved to increase fruit quality. Removing some clusters increases the size and quality of the fruit that remain. So he's actually cutting grapes off the vine so that the grapes that grow to the harvest mature more, more completely. In cold climates, fruit thinning hastens ripening, and the leaves leaves the vine more hardy to go into winter. And they always clip off the leaves around a cluster to increase air circulation and decrease disease. Maybe what God is looking for from our lives is not just more grapes, more frenetic activity. Maybe what he's looking for is for us to slow down and grow a deep, meaningful, sweet inner life connected to the vine with him at the center. That's what abiding is all about. And I thought I was going to make this sermon about abiding, but then I realized we had to talk about pruning first. So that'll be next time. Here's the point of the Heavenly Father, the vine dresser. God knows what he's doing. Do we believe it? He knows what he's doing with my life on this very day and with yours. You'd think that something as crucial to God's plan as us bearing fruit would just happen automatically, that it's all just up to him, and if we're not bearing fruit, it must be his fault. He's sovereign, isn't he? Nothing could be further from the truth. He always gives us the power of choice. And how we respond to the pruning, if we respond with cooperation and thankfulness, he's able to do more and grow us more. Or if we respond with resentment and self-pity, sometimes that's the end of the story, and we no longer walk closely with him. For the vineyard to produce, the individual branches have to respond positively to the attentions of the vine dressers. And not all vines and branches respond alike. So let's say there's a basket under each vine, and the basket is the totality of the harvest. You come to that first basket, and you find in it nothing, no fruit at all. Now you look into the second basket. It has some fruit. There's a handful of grapes. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so it will be even more fruitful. 
Now we look at the third basket, and it has more fruit. Good news. Getting better. Praise God. Can the harvest be better than this? But check out the fourth basket. Jesus' description for this branch is that it will bear much fruit. If a man remain in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But that requires all that pruning. Each of us is a branch producing a clearly defined level of abundance in our lives. So here is the really good news of this morning. The Father, the wise and compassionate vine dresser, loves us so much that he actively tends our lives so that we progressively bear more and more and more fruit. Sweeter and sweeter fruit. He works with us to move our lives from barren to productive, from an empty basket to an overflowing basket. So let me ask you, how are you doing with this? Would you say that you were bearing much fruit? I mean, who would want to say that? It would sound like you're proud. But when you realize that bearing much fruit is his work in us and through us, how much fruit do you see in your life this morning? This is not a unique phenomenon reserved for just super-Christians. It's God's destiny for every single believer. So here's some more amazingly good news. We don't have to settle for anything less than much fruit. If we know and apply this teaching and surrender our life to the vine dresser's care, we can experience the abundant life that we were wired to long for. Once we realize that God's wise and invisible hand is doing these things in our life, we can respond positively, and he can do more with us. So I want you to consider what my Sunset Pruning Book says about grapes. It says, annual dormant pruning is necessary for any grapevine to remain healthy and bear the best-tasting fruit. So how often does this vine need to be pruned? At least once a year. All right? And then it says, be ready to prune off quite a bit from your vine over three-quarters of the previous year's growth. Now, for you and I, when it seems like God is taking away three-quarters of what we did last year, what would we be doing? We'd be saying, no, God, no, I, I worked too hard. Why are you letting that happen to me? He says, I know what I'm doing. I'm after the much fruit. The most popular pruning techniques prunes all the way down to only two buds on the cane. And in Scouting the Divine, Christoph the Vintner describes it this way. It looks like you cut off all the growth. It's present pain and loss in exchange for future harvest. So let's go back and look very carefully at these verses. 
John 15, verse 2, in my NIV reads, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Well, this is a pretty troubling thought. Some would interpret this to mean, unless you're producing, you're not really a Christian, and God's going to kick you out. Others would say, if you persist all your life long and never give evidence of your salvation, you won't be saved. But look carefully here. Jesus says, every branch in me. Now, the New Testament uses that phrase, in Christ or in, in me, to mean connected up with Jesus, being covered by his goodness and his righteousness and his love. For example, in Philippians 3, 9, Paul says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Or look at Romans 8, verse 1. I love this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, if you're having a peasley amount of fruit or no fruit at all, but you're still in Christ, you can trust that he still has a plan. Hold on to him. Hold on tight. And then there is Jesus' puzzling comment in John 15, 3, where he says, you are already clean. What do they mean by clean? How does the takeaway in verse 2 relate to the cleanness of verse 3? And what does cleanness have to do with no fruit? Bruce Wilkinson, in the book, The Secrets of the Vine, has an explanation that I just loved. The Greek word that's translated cuts off or takes away in John 15, 2 has several meanings. The Greek word iro can also mean take up or lift up. We find the word used this way in Matthew 14, 20, when the disciples picked up 12 baskets of food after feeding the 5,000. Or this word is also used in Matthew 27, 32, when Simon was forced to pick up Christ's cross and carry it up the hill for him. In both the Bible and Greek literature, iro never means cut off. It means lifted up. Therefore, when some Bibles render John 15, 2, to mean that unfruitful believers are cut off and thrown away, This is exactly the opposite of what he was meaning. He is a compassionate vine dresser. A row suggests that the image of the vine dresser leaning over and lifting up the branch. But why? So Bruce Wilkinson also interviewed a vine dresser and reported it in The Secrets of the Vine. This is what he found. New branches do not grow up they trail down, and they grow along the ground. But grape branches on the ground do not bear fruit. As they grow 
on the ground, they get coated with dust and dirt, and when it rains, it, they be, it get muddy, and then they begin to mildew, and the branch becomes sick and useless. So Bruce asked the vine dresser, so what do you do? Do you just cut them off and throw them into the compost? Oh, no, the vine dresser exclaimed. That branch is valuable. We go through the vineyard with a bucket of water, searching for any place the branches are dirty. We lift them up and wash them off. Then we wrap them around the trellis or tie them back up to the vine, and pretty soon they're thriving. So imagine Jesus that night as he knows he's going to Gethsemane and trial and the cross to take our sins, bending down and showing his disciples this tangible object lesson of how the Heavenly Father would treat them when they failed. Because they're all going to fail that night. They're all going to abandon him and leave him alone. And this is such amazing news, because when we, the branches, fall into the dirt, God does not throw us away or abandon us or cast us out. Instead, he lifts us up and washes us off and ties us tightly to Jesus the vine, where we can flourish again. God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. He loves us enough to do whatever it takes to make us like Jesus, especially when we give him permission. It is not the vine dresser's will to judge us and cast us away. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His purpose is to lift us, cleanse us, and free us from sin so that we can bear much fruit to his glory. But that sometimes takes some discipline. So he has to step in and lift away from us our own destructive and unfruitful pursuits. He doesn't remove us from the vine, but he does remove the sin from us. Whenever we give him permission, he takes that sin and rebellion in our lives that would render us unfruitful. And that's good news. You are not stuck being the person you are today. He's going to work on you. But that takes discipline. So Hebrews 12 describes his discipline. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Well, why would a loving father want to bring us pain, even a little bit of pain in a small dose? Because he needs our attention to be on him. And he wants to gain that highly desirable result of much fruit in our lives. As Hebrews 12, verse 11 exclaim, explains, no chastening seems to be joyful for the moment, the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields what? Peaceable fruit 
of righteousness. The result of discipline is that we bear fruit, if we will accept the discipline. So let me share a very personal and humbling experience from my own life. And I have to trust you to tell you this story, and I haven't been ready until now. Several years ago, I was in a very unhappy season. Our kids were teenagers, and Mark and I constantly disagreed about how we were going to shape their behavior. We were putting a $1.4 million addition onto the Brunswick Church, and Mark was absorbed with seeing that project succeed, raising the money and leading the volunteer teams to see the project to completion. We took absolutely no time with or for each other apart from the necessities of our work. And all we ever talked about was work or the kids. And both were stressful. In the process of drawing up the plans for the addition, I requested an office, a desk, and a telephone so that when Mark was sitting at his own desk, I would have a place to land. And to my dismay, the building committee, with Mark right there, chose not to honor my request. Now, I'd already served this church for 13 years, and that decision felt like a personal rejection. Sadly, a year earlier, the conference had revoked my credentials without warning, saying I was only half-time and they were only giving credentials now to full-time employees. And the combination of all this stuff began to build resentment in me. And as I rehearsed my case, in my mind, it grew and grew and grew until it was a full-blown case of gender discrimination. Not fair. Meanwhile, Parkview Hospital, where I served half-time as the lead chaplain, affiliated with a larger hospital about an hour away, Central Maine Medical Center, and Central Maine offered CPE, clinical pastoral education. It's like med school for chaplains. In the hospital, training professional, really high-powered professional training. And I could earn graduate credits for the hours I spent at Parkview just doing my job. I decided I would apply for one intensive quarter And if I succeeded, I could eventually earn enough credits to become a fully certified chaplain, and I could walk away from my complicated relationship with the Adventist Church, and perhaps even walk away from my marriage if it didn't get any better by then. I would test my wings. Maybe God would open the door to lead me into a completely different life than the one that I had where I felt so completely stuck. So against Mark's will, I applied for the class and began. And from the very first day, it was disaster. But I'm stubborn, and I refuse to ever give up, and I never quit. The teacher was a highly trained psychologist, and part of the application process was this detailed personal and professional history. And I wrote it like I felt it. My professional history is not pretty. Many, many, many chapters of pain and struggle with a system that's just trying to figure out what to do with me. My story was raw at that point, 
and full of angst. And this teacher took what I wrote and repeatedly used it against me in front of the class. Presumably to humble me, to help me acknowledge how bitter I was, that I was seeing myself as a victim. But it was complicated also that I already had 15 years of experience as a chaplain, and he didn't want anybody else in that class to tell any other stories but his. He wanted to be the only teacher in that class. And I reacted to him, and he was a whole lot smarter than me. He intensified. I reacted more strongly. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I, w I got down to 125 pounds. My stomach was in perpetual spasms. And then halfway through the quarter, the teacher handed me a letter that said, you're kicked out. Now, I had gone all the way through a master's degree, and I'd never been in trouble one time. Through elementary, Auburn Academy, Walla Walla College, Andrews Seminary, my teachers always loved me. So what was going on? This teacher caught me on a technicality. I'd used one of my classmates' papers with her permission to teach my volunteer chaplain team at Parkview. He said that I had broken our confidentiality agreement. The event reported in that paper happened at his hospital and should not have been used for training somewhere else. And he kicked me out. I went home broken and thoroughly ashamed, feeling like I had let the Lord down. I'd been praying so hard that I would honor him through this whole process. And this just, it, I felt like I had just blown it hugely. Now, I was the chairman of my department, so I had to go back and tell my employees, some of whom had more training than I did, that I didn't make, I didn't cut it, that I hadn't made it. I was so thoroughly confused about why God hadn't given me grace and wisdom for a better outcome. I was like the disciples were on that Thursday night, just completely confused about what God was doing in my life. I felt like God had let me down. Clip. My loving Heavenly Father deftly cut away the possibility of an entire sequence of future choices in my life. He just cut that whole big branch off. And now I was still working for the Adventist Church and still in my marriage. It took about six months for the pain to subside enough for me to understand. God had just shaped my life and my entire future, leaving only the branches that would produce the best fruit cutting away that very large branch that contained my personal rebellious escape plan. But then God washed me off. I think I should have invested in Kleenex stock that winter. I would wake up about 4 o'clock every morning and read and pray and cry for two hours. When my girls would get out of bed at 6, they would find me in big blue, my praying chair, surrounded by a mountain of soggy Kleenex. 
But slowly, gradually, as the months went by, my tears of self-pity became tears of repentance. And when the Lord prunes you, go ahead and cry. Whatever it is he's taking from your life, he understands he collects our tears in his bottle. But if your tears never move from self-pity to repentance, you haven't understood the Father's good hand. And then God lifted me up. That spring, a pair of cardinals built their nest in the lilac bush right outside my second-story bathroom window. I sat on the toilet and watched them as they built and feathered their nest, kept the eggs warm and the babies hatched, as the parents fed them and as the baby cardinals learned to fly. I saw it all from about three feet away, just right through my bathroom window. With joy, I accepted those little birds, this natural beauty as an exquisite love gift from my God. Yes, he had pruned me hard, but he was still right there loving me. My dear friends, Satan would love to convince you that if the Father is dealing firmly with you, you are a worthless, unlikable loser. But that's the enemy, and recognize it as him and not your Heavenly Father. The opposite is true. Only if you've never needed discipline should you doubt God's favor. He prunes every branch he knows can still bear much fruit. It means he still believes in you. And that's a promise worth holding on to during difficult seasons. He never wastes any pain when we surrender it to him. And I keep praying this little prayer that says, God, help me surrender to you before the pain. Right? If I just get with your program early in the process, it will just save me. All that ugly, nasty stuff, right? Please, just help me surrender even before I get disciplined. Well, we'll return to this passage in a few weeks and talk about what it means to abide in Christ. But this morning, I want to leave you with a personal question, something that you can ponder in the days and weeks to come. Do you trust your Heavenly Father, the vine dresser, to know what he is doing in your life right now, today. As you face seasons of pain and loss, will you face them with bitterness and anger or with the expectant hope that somehow he will use it to help you bear much fruit? Heavenly Father, you are able. You are able to take every mess we find ourselves in and somehow use it to help us. Lord, help us to trust you. And when you need to discipline us, teach us not to tantrum too long, but instead just cling to you and find there your life-giving strength and the promise of eternity and the promise that you have plans for us to prosper us, not to harm us, 
to give us a hope and a future. Lord, may we walk closely with you. May we abide in you. And may we trust you with especially the hardest places of our lives. Thank you, Lord, and may we go in your grace and in your strength, clinging to you this day. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.